If you're new, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm thankful that you are here. If you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you in a pew in front of you, and Luke 11 will be found on page 869. We'll be talking, uh, on account of the fact that we lost an hour of sleep, we're going to be talking about devils and demons today. So hopefully that'll keep you awake. Should be fun, at least for me. Devils and demons. We're going to read verses 14 down to uh, verse 26, and then ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and then uh, we'll work through this text a little bit at a time. Luke 11, verse 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a kingdom and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Let's pray. Father, we bow ourselves before you and ask for your help in understanding this text. These are somewhat confusing things that we have just read. And we need your Holy Spirit to guide us into understanding. Help us to see Jesus and hear him. And by seeing and hearing our Lord, may our hearts burn ever hotter in their affections for him and our lives grow in their obedience to him. That he would receive the glory and the praise that only he deserves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Pickle Baptist said, Amen. Well, I guess I should just come out and say it. I believe in a real devil. 
I believe in demons. I believe people can be, and sometimes are, possessed by demons. I believe in a real Satan. Not the imp-like little Satan with the pointy tail and the pitchfork that like stands on your shoulder and tempts you to eat too much ice cream or something. I believe Satan is a created being, a powerful evil angel, a demon, the prince head of demons. He is the serpent in the garden of Eden. He sinned against God and he now continually works evil in the world. Satan is the personal name that is given to him in the book of Job and throughout the Bible. His name means adversary, for that is what he is. He is the adversary of God and the adversary of God's people. I believe in Satan and demons because because Jesus did. To the modern ear, I recognize this sounds crazy. It sounds like I'm saying I believe in the boogeyman. I might as well say I believe in Gandalf the Grey and the orcs of Mordor. Well, so be it. Whether or not we moderns accept the reality of a real devil and real angels does not change the fact that they are real. The Bible teaches that there is a battle raging all around us. It is a war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And whether you know about this war or whether or not you like it, you must pick a side. There are no Swiss in this war. I like their cheese, but Swiss foreign policy won't cut it in this war. There is no neutrality in this theater. You must pick a side, and to not pick a side is to pick the wrong side. This war between the forces of good and evil have appeared throughout Luke's gospel. If you've been with us and paying attention, Luke eleven fourteen 14 is the 27th mention of demons in this book. And we're not even halfway through. But Luke is not the only biblical author that mentions Satan and demons. In fact, it's all over the New Testament. And it would probably be good for us to consider or to consider again just how pervasive this reality is. First, John chapter 3, verse 8 makes things very clear. John writes, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And then later John writes, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The Apostle Paul, writing to Christians, tells them that before you followed Christ, you followed the prince of the power of the air, the devil. He goes on to explain that Christians wrestle against spiritual forces of darkness. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood 
but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So yes, my friends, the Bible says that there is a real devil. And he is not only very real, he is also very strong. And if you are in Christ, he is very much not something you should worry about. He has been defeated. He has no power over you. When the Lord commissioned the Apostle Paul into the ministry, he told him that he was sending him to, listen to these words, open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. He is a strong man, but he has been overcome by one who is stronger. And that is what this passage is all about. Jesus Christ, our deliverer. Jesus Christ, what my son's Bible calls the snake crusher. Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 26, pulls back the veil on one important element, one important reality surrounding the Lord's ministry. The entrance of the Lord Jesus into this world was an invasion, an infiltration, an all-out assault against the kingdom of darkness. He is the king who came to take what was rightfully his. And through his life and death and resurrection, Jesus Christ overcame the evil one and rescued his people from the devil's dark prison. This passage teaches that there is a spiritual battle going on all around us. It teaches us that in this battle, there are only two sides, and you must pick one or the other. Here's the main point we'll be drawing from this text this morning. Jesus Christ has overcome the evil one and set his people free. Fill your life with him. I trust that you'll see that as we go along. Let's read verses 14 to 16 again as we consider Jesus being accused of satanic power. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and people marveled. Oh, but some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, before we get too deep into this passage, I would like to draw your attention to the context of this passage. We've spent some time in Luke 11, and you'll remember the first part of Luke 11 was all about prayer. The Lord Jesus has been teaching us how to pray, why to pray. And verse 13 ends with Jesus promising that God the Father will give God the Holy Spirit to all who ask Verse 14 then opens rather suddenly, rather unexpectedly perhaps, on Jesus casting a demon out of a man who is mute. A man whose voice God created to pray to him, to sing his praise, to give glory to him, to edify others has been made mute. And we're not told how long 
We're just told that he is. And Dr. Luke, a physician, is totally fine telling us that this man's muteness is due to a demon. Can you imagine this diagnosis today? Right? What's wrong with me, Doc? Well, you have a demon, son. Good luck to you. <laughs> is that even covered by my insurance? Does this mean that every mute person in the world is possessed by a demon? It doesn't. But to say that none are would be to fool ourselves. One French poet wrote, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And so are we to suppose that the enemy of God no longer does this sort of mischief in the lives of people today? Well, what are we to make of those men and women who can speak to literally anyone but to God? Is it possible that those who are under the power of Satan have had their, the truest use of their tongue stripped from them? The ministry of Jesus Christ, as I said, was an invasion. It was a SEAL Team 6 rescue mission to deliver God's people from the prison of darkness where they were shackled by their sin. And this is why we call the Lord our deliverer. And so don't get it wrong, church. Your unbelieving friends and family and coworkers are in prison. They are slaves to sin. They are under the power of the evil one. The God of this world has blinded their eyes from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They are, like this man here, helplessly mute, needing Christ to deliver them, to grant them a tongue to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. So pray for them. Share the gospel with them. Plead with them if necessary. And ask God to rescue them from this unbelieving prison. So Jesus casts out a demon from this man, and the man begins to speak. The reactions to this miracle are, to me, shocking. Some marvel, which is good, I guess. Others accuse Jesus, and still others want to see more signs. And that's shocking to me. God the Son does a clear miracle, delivers a fellow from a demon. You have a, a formerly speechless man over here singing like Freddie Mercury, and some people won't believe. It's, to me, proof that seeing miracles is never enough to overcome unbelief. More evidence does not give birth to faith. A new heart is needed. Sinners must be rescued. Well, some who were in the crowd accused the Lord Jesus of casting out demons by the power of, well, you read it, Beezable, the prince of demons. Some of the old translations are Beezlebub. The name Beezlebub is a transliteration of a Hebrew phrase, Baal, Zebub, 
It's, the, it's a name that's given to a pagan god in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 1. The, the name means Lord of the Flies or something like that. And over the, to, over, over the, the centuries, it just became a catch-all term to refer to the prince of demons, Satan. In their unbelief, these folks accused Jesus Christ, God the Son, of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And the Lord knows their thoughts. But if that's not evidence enough that you're not dealing with a demoniac person, he's reading your thoughts. But nevertheless... Jesus goes on to show that this explanation of his power is both illogical as well as inconsistent, and that another explanation is needed. Let's pick up in verse 17, down to 23. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is divided against Satan, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then how do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. Jesus shows that this accusation that he drives out Satan by Satan is both illogical and it is inconsistent. Why would Satan cast out Satan? It doesn't make any sense. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. A divided household falls. When he's running for U.S. Senate Abraham Lincoln warned the country of an impending civil war, and he quoted this verse. He said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. He goes on to say that, I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. It will become all one thing or all the other. And he was right. It did descend into a civil war. And he was right that it did become all one thing or all the other. Jesus says that your accusation doesn't make any sense. If I'm out here rescuing people from the clutches of Satan, why would Satan give me this power? Why would Satan cast out Satan? Civil war weakens the thing. So your accusations are illogical. But they're not just illogical, they're also inconsistent. Because in verse 19 he says, if I cast out demons by abusable, how about your kids? How about your sons? How do they cast them out? Now, most commentators understand that your sons is a reference to first century Jewish exorcists. There wasn't many of them back then. They weren't, not like they were running around all over the place, but they, were, they are mentioned in the book of Acts. And they're also mentioned by the church historian Josephus. 
There's this general idea that when a rabbi or somebody delivered a person from demonic possession, it was a sign that God was working among them. Well, this is just what Jesus is doing. And when they see him doing it, they're attributing that power to do it to the devil. Their hearts have been so hardened against the Lord, they ignored this double standard, and they accused the Lord of glory of Satanism. And they're being inconsistent. And so Jesus says, your own exorcists are going to be your own judges. Well, so if it's not by Satan that I drive out demons, what's the other option? Verse 20. If it is by the finger of God that I cast them out, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That phrase, finger of God, is a reference to Exodus chapter 8. If you remember from the Exodus story, the Lord told Pharaoh to release his people out of slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. And so the Lord gave him chance after chance after chance to repent. And the way he did this is by performing miracles through his servant Moses, judgments, plagues against Egypt. When they first got started, Moses would do a miracle through God, and then the Egyptian magicians would come up with a, an imitation, some kind of counterfeit miracle to show that this guy's not something special. We could do the same thing. But eventually, they couldn't do it. They ran out of magic. <laughs> it was the part having to do with gnats, which is strange enough. But they, they said to Pharaoh, we can't do that. Instead, they said, this is by the finger of God. And Jesus is borrowing that phrase to show that Satan is not behind the power to deliver this man from Satan. This is the finger of God. And if it is the finger of God, it means that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now notice Jesus is not just saying that the kingdom of God has come. He said the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here. You got to do something with it. There is no neutrality here. Pick a side. And then the Lord reveals even more about what he's been doing in his ministry every time he does a miracle, every time he casts out demons. Verse 21 and 22 are sort of like a mini parable. Jesus, Jesus gives us an illustration of what's happening during his ministry. So he says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his stuff is safe, nobody's going to touch it. But when one stronger than he attacks him, overcomes him, he takes away his armor, which he trusted, and divides his spoil. Now, the strong man here in Jesus' illustration is clearly Satan. Jesus likens him to a prince, fully armed, guarding a palace. His goods are the souls of people still under the power of sin. It's a powerful image to depict the tragic state of the unbelieving world. I mean, I don't know if you've thought in terms like this when you're thinking about your loved ones who are not in Christ. But Scripture would say that they are under the power of the evil one, blind to the glories of Christ and to the filth of their sin. 
They are under the influence, the power of Satan. They are shackled by their sins. The devil has claimed them as his own. So friend, if you're not a Christian and you're here with us today, you picked the perfect day to come to church. The Lord Jesus Christ is explaining to you the state you are in. You may not feel like you are enslaved. You may feel that you're free as a bird. But dear friend, according to God, you are shackled. Your God is your appetite. The Bible says your end is destruction. The Bible says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And and my friend, please listen. You are not able to free yourself by your own doing. Your captor is too strong. He is too wise. Just like Pharaoh, he will not let you go on your own. No, sinner. You must be rescued. And so you should read verse 22 with great hope. The devil is strong, but there is one who is stronger. Turn to Jesus Christ today. Repent of your sins Take hold of Christ by faith and you will be rescued from the power of Satan. You will be brought out of darkness into God's marvelous light and granted eternal life. Find any one of the Christians that you watch take the Lord's Supper and ask them to tell you about how God the Son rescued them from the devil's dark prison. Jesus is the stronger man in verse 22. He invaded the devil's wicked palace. Colossians 2 says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Jesus broke the chains. The power of sin which held his people captive has been defeated. Through his death on the cross, Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of death. He plundered the devil's goods. He set the captives free. He delivered all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christian brother and sister, Jesus Christ looked upon your life the same as he looked upon blind Bartimaeus, the same as he looked upon that poor woman with the disabling spirit in Luke 13. He looked upon you the same as he did this mute man. He saw you when you were under the power of Satan, bridled by your sin, bound by your unbelief. He ransacked the devil's dark prison. He overcame the evil one. He broke your chains. He set you free. You have been delivered from the power of Satan over to God. You are a slave of your sin no more. You have a new heart. You have a new life. You have been dressed in the very robes of the righteousness of Christ Jesus gave you heaven it's yours and will be so forever 
And here's the point the Lord is making. That there are only two states for the sons of Adam. You are either in Christ or you are of the devil. There is no neutrality. You cannot be indifferent or detached. To ignore Christ is to reject him. And to reject him is to remain under the power of the evil one. And so this is why the Lord says in no uncertain terms, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. A line has been drawn. You are either on the side of Christ or you are on the side that is against him. And I will not apologize for the Lord's words here. In a world of gray, this is black and white. You are either working for the cause of Christ or you are working against the cause of Christ. You're either gathering or scattering. There's no freelancers. There's no working for yourself. To work for yourself is to work against God. And may the Lord have mercy on those who do. And, and you see, this is a choice that each of us must make. It, so if you're here and you're just, I'm really not sure about this whole Jesus thing. I'm not sure I believe the Bible. You're talking about Gandalf and orcs. I don't get it. I understand what you mean by this, but just listen to what the Lord is saying to you. To be undecided is to be decidedly against. Choose you this day whom you will serve. There is no middle way. In the closing illustration that Jesus gives... It's rather sobering. He teaches us that anyone can clean up their life and look good. But unless that life is filled with Christ, it is in grave danger. Let's read verses 24 to 26 as we draw this to a close. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it's the same, same words used up in 14. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I'll return to my house from which I came. Notice, my house. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes, brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And Jesus says the last state of that person is worse than the first. It's another mini parable, it's another metaphor, it's another illustration. Demons are spirits, they don't need water, they don't need rest. So a demon passing through waterless places seeking rest is a metaphor that's 
meant to lift the veil on the spiritual realities of the unseen realm. And there are several things in these verses that the Lord teaches us about the unseen realm, about Satan and demons. Jesus tells us the demons are restless creatures. They can come and go from their host. They hate to be without a host. From this we can also learn that some demons are more evil than other demons. And in some cases, a person can be possessed by more than one demon. The point, though, that the Lord is making is that mankind is safe from the spiritual forces of darkness only when they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Not only must mankind be healed from their demons, they must be sealed by the Holy Spirit. And any attempt, self-empowered, to reform one's life without the saving work of God the Holy Spirit is not only futile, but it also opens someone up to worse. And so Jesus is describing a person whose life has been cleansed of their demonic influence. We're not told why the demon goes out, just that it does. But the point isn't how it goes out. The point is that in the absence of this demon, this person is able to make, how do we put it, a a moral recovery perhaps. His house, the metaphor for his life, is swept and put into order. But notice it remains empty. It's not been filled. And this is sobering. This means that anyone can clean up their life, sweep the dirt of immorality out of their life, start living a good, clean life. Delude themselves into thinking that because they're doing good things, they're doing good. Because they're keeping their life clean of immoral things, that they're good with God. Good spiritually. But it is possible for a good person to still be under the power of the evil one. The Pharisees are case in point. Pharisees were religious leaders in Jesus' day who, on the outside, looked very devoted. Their lives were clean. If anyone's lives were clean, their lives were clean. They attended synagogue every time. Every time they were supposed to be in church, they were in church. They memorized the scriptures. They debated theology. They kept moral and ceremonial and the civil laws of God. 
And from the outside, you would look at them and say, that's what a God follower should be. Meticulous about keeping God's law. You know that passage where Jesus is saying, you guys strain a gnat, swallow a camel. They strain gnats because a gnat was not something you were allowed to eat. So they put strainers over what they would drink to make sure that a gnat didn't fall in by accident. That's how meticulous they sought to keep the law of God. And Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They were beautiful on the outside. On the outside, they looked good. They looked just what you would expect a God follower to look like. But on the inside, dead. A rotting corpse. On the outside, beautiful. But on the inside, empty of life. You see, we need more than a life reformation. We need a heart regeneration. We need more than new habits. We need new hearts. We need more than a moral change. We need total conversion. A swept and orderly life a Christian does not make. Nature abhors a vacuum. And this must be true of the spiritual realm as well. Because on their own, a person may drive out the evil renters from their lives. But without filling their life with Christ and his barring of the door, the old renter will just find seven other spirits more evil than itself to take up residence again. And Jesus said the last state is worse than the first. And that means, this is why it's so sobering to me. Because it means that there may be people in this very room who consider themselves to be good with God who are not saved at all. From the outside, they look exactly what you would think a Christ follower would look like. They do all the right things. They keep all the rules. They do all the things you would expect a Christian to do. They act like it. They talk like it. They walk like it. But inside, there's no spiritual life. The human heart cannot be dispossessed by anything for very long. It must have an object of its affection. It must worship something. And so a man may be disposed of lust when his desire for riches gains ascendancy in his heart. Neither will help them. Both will send him to hell. But he needs more than to let go of this sin and take hold of another one. He needs more than just moral and behavioral change. He needs to be, to borrow a phrase from Paul, to be filled with the fullness of God. The only way to dispossess the human heart from the damning affections is by the expulsive power of a greater affection. Something Pastor Steve taught us about a couple of weeks ago. And Ephesians 3 is helpful here. As lives are cleared of demonic influence, they must be filled with the power of God. 
The language of Ephesians 3 is, as I said, to be filled with the fullness of God. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 how that happens. He says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge is to be filled with the fullness of God. It seems to me that a clean and well-ordered life, one is one that is filled with the fullness of God. One where the person goes to church and obeys the laws and pays the taxes and reads the Bible and knows theology and gives to charity and free, is free from addiction, avoids obscene talk and helps out at the school board and serves at the church. And Ephesians 3 is not contradicting any of those things. It's just saying that these things need to be put into right order. To know the love of Christ is to be filled with the fullness of God. Knowing the love of God in Christ will lead to those other things, but those other things do not lead to the love of God in Christ. Everything starts with the love of God in Christ. Filling your life. Much good comes from moral reformation, even from spiritual devotion. Much good comes when you get your life swept and put into order, but only when it is done for God's sake. And often it is done for our own sake. Often, cleaning up our lives and getting them into order is done to give us metrics by which we can gauge God's favor over our lives, metrics by which we can gauge how we're doing as compared to others. And this is quintessential Phariseeism. If resting and rejoicing in Jesus Christ, if the love of Christ is not what is filling our hearts, we've missed the point. I really, really, really hope we were listening a few weeks ago when Pastor Steve was shepherding us through that passage at the end of chapter 10. I might, this might be overstating it. I, no one was banging on my office door that week. So I wonder if the reality of what he preached really settled on us. That being filled with the fullness of God means Resting. Not doing. That you don't gauge God's favor over your life based on something you have done. Oh, but you can gauge God's favor over your life. It's everything he did. If you want to know how God thinks and feels about you, you need to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. Be filled 
with the fullness of God. The Christian life is not really about ridding your life of sin and Satan, but about filling your life with Christ. And when you do, sin and Satan are simply displaced. That's what we mean when we say we proclaim the excellencies of Christ until Christ is all. Contained in that phrase, until Christ is all, is holiness and purity and righteousness. Because when he's all, the devil has no power here. You're not enticing me with anything that he hasn't already given me. So yes, of course, rid your life of sin and Satan, but you're not going to have much traction doing so unless you're filling it with Christ. And by filling it with Christ, I mean growing in your knowledge of the love of God in Christ. Christian, you have been set free Christ has plundered the devil's dungeon. Christ has broken the chains of sin. Christ has delivered you from the power of Satan. Christ has made you free. So you can walk tall this week, confident that God's favor truly does rest upon your life. Not because you have it all together. Not because when someone turns up in your spiritual house, it's swept and it's put in order. That's not what makes you good. What makes you good is that Christ has set his love on you. So walk tall. Walk confident. Because that's a love. He's not taken back. Father, we give you thanks this morning from grateful hearts that we have been spared the penalty that we deserve. The chains are what we deserved. It's what we earned. And by your power and because of your great mercy, you have saved us from the grip of the evil one. Lord, we thank you for this. Forgive us, Lord, of our unbelief. Forgive us for acting like we're still imprisoned. Forgive us for living like we're still under the power of sin. That the enemy still has a voice that we listen to. And Lord, please enable us, your children, to live as we truly are, to live free. To live as children of God, to walk tall, to keep our head up and our hearts filled with the love of God in Christ. And give us grace based upon his favor in our life to fearlessly share him with others. Lord, cause the name of Christ to resound in praise in the earth until Christ is all. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the prayer of confession, the assurance of pardon, rather. At the end of the service, we like to take a moment and be assured of God's pardon over our life. Our assurance comes from Romans chapter 6, verses 10 to 11. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, this is true over you. For the death he died, he died to sin once 
for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, Pickle Baptist Church, must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. For it is truly well with your soul.